Simon Deakin. I'm director of the Centre for Business Research. I'm Boya Wang. I'm a postdoc research fellow in the Centre for Business Research. Simon and Boya, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast blog series today. Your working paper is called Corporate Governance, Institutional Environment and Firm Performance, Cross-Provincial Evidence of Chinese Firms During the Financial Crash of 2008 to 2009. Simon, given the volatility at the moment of the Chinese markets, are there any lessons from the past that we can learn from? You've done this research, but does it help us guide our way through the present market volatility? Well, there there may not be that much we can learn from the the current turbulence in in stock markets because stock markets, and the Chinese one is no exception, go up and down. I think what's more interesting is to focus on what's happening over the medium term to long term in China and the nature of institutional change in China. One must also remember that the stock markets in China are relatively small compared to the overall economy and are much less important when it comes to financing firms and would be the case in many other countries. So one can be a little bit distracted by day-to-day or week-to-week news in the stock market, actually. Boya, you've participated in this research too. Can you tell me if you think there are lessons in the current crisis that we can learn from the past? I think both the current and the past state of the Chinese stock market shows the importance of the domestic market as the buffer zone against the external shock. And institutional development clearly plays a very important role in releasing the growth potential of the domestic market. So, Simon, would you agree with that, that there are institutional buffers? I think that's what Boyle was saying. Well, I I think that the the message to take from the Chinese case is that uh, the underlying economy is still strong. We'll have to see what happens, but essentially China's undergone an extraordinary transformation over the past 20 to 30 years with very high levels of growth. Now, of course, China is a late industrializer, and you'd expect high levels of growth in an economy in that particular position. But many low-income countries as China was, or middle-income countries as China has become, have not enjoyed anything like as high a rate of growth. So the underlying story of China's development is an important one for the global economy, and it's very important to understand why China has grown as quickly as it has. And it's important to see what will happen next. And the answer to that question depends to a large extent upon China's institutions, depends upon its, its legal system as well as the other factors which have been driving its economic growth, its entrepreneurs, its businesses, its resources. So it's whether or not the markets and the businesses, both in the China itself and outside of China, believe in how the financial markets are regulated. Is that what you're saying? I think the financial markets are part of the story, but I think there's a, there's a bigger story about how Chinese industry has developed, which is more important than what's been happening recently in stock markets. I think there are two schools of thought about this. One is that China has enjoyed this very rapid growth because of an activist state, party state, which has moulded Chinese industrial development. The other school of thought would say that Chinese capitalism is developing from below, like capitalism everywhere else, and that the state is too powerful and should have its role diminished. There's also a big debate in China about the role of so-called trust or or guanxi. So uh, the, the question we've been addressing in the research is, how has China been able to grow as quickly as it has without having 
a Western rule of law, a legal system supporting contract and property rights. And the answer comes back is to do with a, an activist state or it's to do with trust at the level of networks and interpersonal relations. We don't altogether accept these claims and the research we've been doing has been investigating China's evolution towards something more like a rule of law state. So that's what we think is the most critical issue here. Boyer, if we cast our minds back to that 07, 08, 09 crash that you've studied, do we know how China responded to it? I think in the past, the Chinese central government was trying to use our fiscal policy to help the country weather the external shock. But this time, we haven't seen any massive stimulus package yet. But clearly, the government is intervening the market with monetary policy and probably further reforms in the state sector. And so if we go back to that crash, in the earlier crash, did China respond appropriately to it? Clearly, at that time, the stimulus package helped the country to maintain the growth engine. But at the same time, it also caused lots of problems, such as the non-performing loans at the different regions. But the long-term effect of this is still uncertain. It's true to say that China is so vast as an economy, with so many millions of people, and with different rules and regulations across China, that there are local as well as national responses. The responses from different localities, from different provinces, vary across their own situations. So we can't really say how they, in general, they respond to the crisis situation. But clearly we see some regions, mainly in the coastal regions, they recover or they are able to maintain their economic growth through the crisis period more successfully than others. And do you agree that at the moment China is going through a similar crisis or is it different significantly? I think they're quite different. The 2008 financial crisis was basically, I mean, caused by the economic turmoil of the advanced economies and the spillover effect affected the Chinese stock market. And this time was more caused or influenced by this slowdown of the Chinese domestic economy itself. And so they are different? Yes, I think so. And should the instruments to correct them be different too? Yeah, I think so. And I see the determination of the central government refraining themselves from issuing the massive economic stimulus package. And so far, the government has emphasised a lot on the institutional development rather than using fiscal instrument. And by institutional development, one element of that would be what Simon referred to, which is the rule of law. Yes, exactly. In particular, such as property right protection and also the state asset reform, pension system reform, they're all intertwined together. So there has been significant change in China since seven. 0809. There is clearly a progress in this field, but I don't think so far there have been many changes yet because, like all other reforms, all these will come across oppositions from the Western interest. So that will not be a smooth and immediate result in the near future. So there's still quite a long way to go yeah, before. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I think so. Let's just ask you about your study. How did you go about this and what data did you use? Because it was a data-driven study and I believe you're, you're trying 
to model? Basically, I collect the data from some electronic database, such as DataStream and the CSMAR database. But also, I've been using some uh, local statistical yearbook to proxy the institutional development in different regions in China. So I was trying to combine different electronic database together. And has that worked? Yeah, so far, I mean, there is some, there's a general chain of confirmation between triangulation, we say, of the different database. And it works quite well to combine the different level of analysis. If we call China a transitional economy, I hope you'll agree with that term, transitional economy, but does that create difficulties in its own right for you to study? Because the rule of law is still developing, and as Simon referred to, trust might be a good thing if clans work together, that you can't immediately progress to the kind of Western economies that we know. I think when we sometimes we say China as a transitional economy in the past, it meant more like from a communist or central planning economy into a market-oriented one. But now when you say China is a transitional economy, it's basically talking about the growth model, whether it's investment-driven into consumer-driven. So as Simon just mentioned, the development of the law plays a very important role in helping this transition. And Simon, do you agree with that term about China being a a transitional economy? On one level, it might be obvious, but on another, it does pose questions about how developed the rule of law is. Yeah, I I guess we we should say what we mean by the rule of law. China would describe itself as as, as a law-based system, and there's been a tremendous amount of legal development in China since the, the 1980s alongside its economic development. But I think China would say they have a rule of law with, with Chinese characteristics, and that formally, at least, the legal system isn't above the, the party state, and the party state continues to have the teleological goal of currently promoting a market economy. So there's something of a, of a paradox here. Some people would say, can you have a a market economy which is planned for and controlled in this way? One aspect of a market economy, I think, is the state steps back at a certain point and creates a space for private enterprise, and the state underpins private enterprise by enforcing property and contract rights, but there are some things the state doesn't do. So China doesn't have a rule of law state in in the sense that we have in the West, where the legal system is clearly above both politics and also very powerful private interests. Now, many people would say that's no problem. In fact, the absence of this rule of law, which is a bit of a a mythical thing anyway, some would say, has helped China grow quickly. In fact, having an activist state that can do things which can't be done in the West, can overcome vested interests alongside interpersonal trust, Guanxi, this has been critical for China's growth so far, and I think that's correct. But I think that what's critical for any middle-income country is to develop institutions which permit not just clan-based trade, but trade between relative strangers. So in the West, contracts are enforced. Normally, property is secured normally between strangers, between third parties, not just within dense networks. And this does reduce transaction costs and it does facilitate exchange. So I think the important transition for a middle-income country is not just from socialism to a market economy. That may be part of it in some cases. Um, It's also As Boyer was saying, it's partly about moving to a more consumption-based model, but it's also about making this transition 
from trust, a mix of trust and authoritarian capitalism to rule of law based capitalism. And I think that this is a, is, a, is a progressive movement, and I think we can see it happening historically in the West. And I think we do see the beginnings of it, I mean, more, than, more than the beginnings, also taking place in China. And where we see this, I think, is from the empirical interview-based research which we've been doing, which is um, speaking face-to-face with business people, with officials, um, with those involved in the banking and financial sector, and asking them to give us their understanding of the evolution of rule of law type practices. And I think we do begin to see there a definite change and a demand for a rule of law which is impersonal, which is above politics and is eventually above the state. Yes, because you've done two studies. You've done Boyer's data-driven study, but you've also done these 2013-14 interviews with entrepreneurs, managers, lawyers, bankers in China for another paper called Different Legal Institutions for Different Economic Settings. Does this help advance our understanding of China's transitional economy today? Well, I I think if you want up-to-date information, then you, you often have to do qualitative research because quantitative data is is normally at least a year out of date, and in some cases more than that. Um, So quant data, it seems to me, um, will give you um, normally um, a representative sample. You can analyze these things statistically. So it's as if you have a very wide but, but, but shallow understanding of what's going on, whereas qualitative research gives you a very narrow but deep understanding. So you may interview 70 people and what they tell you may not easily be replicated and in some ways it's less reliable, but it gives you a narrative account and it gives you an up-to-date account that you don't always get with the quantitative data. So you, you should ideally do both. It's what social scientists call multiple methods research. And I think if you if you speak face-to-face with people and it's just as demanding and difficult as doing quantitative research, it's very resource-intensive, and demanding and, and, and difficult to do. I think you do get an additional source of data which, which can give you insights into understandings and perceptions um, of things which are very difficult to measure. Right, so it's actually difficult to measure, I think impossible to measure the rule of law, or very difficult. But you, by speaking face-to-face with people who are in the situation of agreeing contracts, doing deals, then, then you get a better understanding of their perceptions of how things have changed. How important do you think this research is? Because it's been ongoing, you've been to China, and yet there are a lot of misconceptions about the Chinese economy, particularly perhaps coming through in the media a moment, regarding this current financial crash. I'm one of those lucky people in the West who got the chance to do research in China because of our ESRC funding and because of the way our project was set up. So I've, I've been able to learn by actually going to China and not just reading about it. So I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the need to visit a place to understand it. Having said that, of course, it's qualitative research. So you, you may be getting something from 70 interviews. You, if you did 70 other interviews, you might get something else. I'm not sure. I, I think what we're getting here is really good evidence. And in fact, the story we'll be getting is fairly consistent. But of course, we, we like to do more research and to understand it better. Regrettably, a lot of the time in the media, the impression of China is, I think, a bit out of date. Okay, so I think social scientists and in particular journalists are often going on evidence from three or four years ago. And do you just agree with that, Boyer, that there is a misunderstanding of the crisis in China, the Chinese markets at the moment? Yes, I, I don't think it's a real, like a crisis situation. But clearly, as Simon just mentioned, journalists and social scientists, they do have to do more fieldwork interviews to, to update their knowledge and understanding about such a fast-growing economy. 
Well, thank you for that synopsis of the Chinese markets today. That ends part one. We will now move on to part two. Thank you.